Welcome to Ride On. I'm here with Scott Colissimo, the founder and CEO of Land Energy. How you doing, Scott? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, so Land Energy, an amazing company uh, with vehicles out there, um, made in Cleveland. I think that's very proud. If you look at that website, you can tell. Um, and Scott's background, of course, being uh, in Cleveland with another company before this. Um, a, a vertically integrated solution and a team, uh, I think, focused on, I'd say, a lot of different aspects of the future of mobility. So, Scott, let's just start there. Um, how'd you come up with the idea for Land Ener Energy and uh, give us more on your background? So, I, uh, in 2009, I started my first mobility business. Uh, the company was Cleveland Cycle Works and went into kind of the old boys network, which was motorcycle manufacturing, right? And, um, you know, we didn't do anything revolutionary. We just provided good quality, good cost vehicles that were very focused on design. And we focused on what we called kind of a platform approach, right? We had a bobber, we had a scrambler, we had a cafe bike, and then it was like a fine tailored suit. You can highly customize them. So, you know, the whole industry was, uh, kind of treating what I call the kind of entry level bike. Is like, oh, poor you, you're you're so lucky to have this cheap, shitty scooter. Um, you know, poor you, but eventually we'll get you into the $15,000 uh, bike mortgage, right? And, you know, at that time I was like, why do all of the entry-level bikes suck? Um, no, you know, there's nothing out there that any of, of my friends or I wanted to ride. So that's really how we got into gas motorcycles is we just wanted affordable, fun bikes to ride and... It's like that was the product, right? We weren't trying to step you up into to something more. Um, scaled that for a couple of years, scaled it globally. We had manufacturing in the US, China, uh, CKD manufacturing in Indonesia. And uh, right before I sold it, we went into India. Um, you know, everyone knows, I, I, I cringe when I say COVID, but COVID was kind of what, it, it stopped our entire manufacturing operation, right? We couldn't get anything. We couldn't get material, couldn't get product. Uh, we went from making thousands of bikes a year to nothing. Um, and since I'm a designer and, and big into R&D, we were sitting right on the other side of this wall as a design and engineering team kind of lamenting like, what the hell are we going to do? Um, and we have been building electric bikes following the market for the first electric bike I made was like 2010, right? Like as a prototype. Um, and the market just wasn't ready yet. And, um, you know, I was looking to get out of China cause we had a lot of manufacturing in China and everything just kind of aligned. Right. Um, so we started doing electric bikes under Cleveland Cycle Works brand. And I quickly realized that it was like, you know, talking about going to Mars, like, oh, we're on the spaceship. And then all of a sudden we're farming. Like they're so different going from gas to electric. So we tried to gently go into electric and it, it just didn't work. So um, we ended up winding down the gas motorcycle business, scaling up the electric. And then our approach was very much like, we don't know anything about this. Let's use them. And being designers and being super focused on like not doing like a one for one, because to be perfectly honest, I don't think if you're trying to sell people on like this idea that an electric motorcycle, if you just make gas electric, it's better. I, I don't think it is at this point. Um, especially when you look at the U S market, right? 650,000 cruiser bikes, kind of where the, 
the top level is, the megajoule of energy and gas is just so much better on the top end. Um, so we just looked at usability, um, and we are motorcycle people, right? Um, we care about the product that's considered. We care about how you use it, how you charge it, you know, what's done with the energy, um, how it's manufactured. And there, there's a lot of things going on in the industry that I, I did um, and I, I don't agree with. And I'm like, all right, we've, we got to fix it. Um, and that's, that's really how land came about was like when you throw a bunch of engineers and designers in a room together, when you can't make anything except for with, you know, what material you have with your own hands, you know, and we were able to tinker kind of for almost a whole year, um, you know, just with, with batteries and building batteries and building motors and drive systems and just kind of going through the whole usability. So, and then, you know, it was like, nobody wanted to be around anyone. So then we went camping and we went out and used the products. Right. So the, we, like, it's better to be lucky, I think, than smart. We, we were lucky enough to fall into it and be exposed to like what was really good and what was really bad. And then at least have the, with electrification, right. And at least have the wherewithal to say, Hey, let's not drink the Kool-Aid. Like let's do better. Um, so the impetus of the, the company was, it was, wasn't a smooth transition. Um, but when we decided to kind of break away from gas, um, that's when, when things really got interesting for us. Okay. And so it's interesting. You, you mentioned, you know, you can't, a motorcycle today, even today, you know, in October, 2023 cannot be a gas, an electric motorcycle cannot be the gas motorcycle not the high on the top end. It just doesn't make sense. And of course that's, you know, that's important to a lot of motorcycle owners. Um, you've also, you know, your background sounds like you've done manufacturing in Cleveland, in Indonesia, in India, in China. It appears with Land Energy, you're just doing that. You're just doing manufacturing in Cleveland, if I if I understand that correctly. Um, so you're. It seems like you're a little bit ahead on this trend of reshoring that we're seeing throughout the industry. Um, but is that the case? Are you only doing manufacturing now in Cleveland? Right now, yeah. Um, and and again, that wasn't planned. When our entire supply chain collapsed. Um, trying to recreate that again in China was untenable, right? Um, you know, there's this, whether the audience knows it or not, there is a definite cold war starting between the U S and China. Um, so we're just, we weren't reading the tea leaves. We were just listening to what people were telling us that like, Hey, you might want to, um, you know, look in a different direction and it, it just kind of happened organically. And we did want to do a lot of it in the U.S. But what really happened is we went to the established players, right? Um, I'm not going to use actual suppliers' names, but we went to supplier A, supplier B, supplier C, supplier D. And we found out that they knew nothing more than we knew. Um, they were just trying to figure it out, right? Um, they had no idea what they were going to do with elect electrification, most of them could barely make a battery for us, right? Like, so this vertical stack, this, you know, owning the IP, having to create all of this stuff, it, it was just pure necessity, right? Um, we didn't want to rework a motor, um, but the axial flux that we found, none of them worked, right? Um, we didn't want to have to do our own coding and write our own tech stack. Um, it's just nobody had the tools or had the, the things that we needed to do this so vertically integrating it made sense. And then, you know, at some point we're like, we don't want to train all of these suppliers how to do what we've just learned for the last 18 months. So that IP we kept in house. So that 
that's kind of how how it all happened. Um, you know, generally intellectual property is um, it's protected in the U.S. So, like a lot of our our U.S. suppliers also aren't just trying to steal our IP, uh, which is great. We have contracts that are enforceable, and you know, people that are generally understand the automotive kind of secrecy. Um, and then, like, look at where we are. We're in Cleveland, Ohio, which has massive, massive roots for automotive manufacturing. And it's all retooling right now. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, again, as someone, you have a lot of experience doing both. Um, clearly, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, people out there that are now just starting to have to make this decision. You know, you've called it a cold war. I think that's a you know pretty apt description of what a lot of people are now saying about the our, our relations and and just, you know, what, what the future might look like. So, um, you know, what are the some some of the advantages you've mentioned, like IP theft and just the, the you know the the type of talent you might have in the U.S. around software and other parts of the tech stack. Uh, what are the biggest things you miss about the old world and the way you could work in the old world? Well, yeah, and I, I should at least explain my history. Um, so, in two thousand nine, coming out of the the recession of two thousand eight, we tried to start Cleveland PsychoWorks one hundred percent in the U.S. Um, but I started with eight thousand dollars. <laughs> we had no money, right? So. Um, we really had to bring in partners that were well capitalized and believed in our our dream. And you know, back then, I, I looked very young, and I was telling people I was doing this big thing. And I think it was more a uh, there just wasn't the capital to do it right. And um, I, I just six six to well almost eight months of trying to do it here and get nowhere. I had to either pivot, or my dream of starting a motorcycle company was going to die. Right, um, and. I had contacts all around the world from my previous experience in the automotive industry and um, working for consumer goods products. I just started calling people and uh, linked up with uh, actually my first employee who is still with us, uh, Wuja, Neil in China. And he said, hop on a plane, come over here. Let's let's go visit some factories. Um, so, so the way I got in China was like, it was very bizarre. I just hopped on a plane. I I think I didn't leave for two and a half years when I landed. Um, and the difference was I was sitting across the table from people my age, right? I was sitting across the table from owners of factories in their 30s that had a lot of manufacturing might, but not a lot of ideas, right? They had plenty of money for manufacturing, but they had nobody funneling them with, hey, this is the kind of thing you need to make. So it was actually a really, there was a need need, right? We The, the two... The two parties needed each other. Um, and during that time, China was just booming. I mean, we were working seven days a week, midnight, 2 a.m. regularly. Um, and I almost felt like I captured a little bit of what the Industrial Revolution was like in the U.S., uh, but at a much grander scale because um, like, we would sketch shit on paper and be like, okay, well, this isn't quite right. Like this, this piece we just stamped out isn't quite right. Um, we just need to see if this will work. And then Neil would be like, hey, there's a CNC shop literally across the street from the factory. Let me go knock on the door and see if they can make these things. And there's a laser cutter here. And we just, we were working 24 hours a day. We just never stopped, right? And, um, you know, my experience at that time was like, a lot of young folks who were working with a ton of energy um, and manufacturing in China was celebrated where everyone here was divesting, right? It was just send it to China. That's what China does. Like nobody cared about it here. So in a, 
in a real sense, I feel like I was like that 2009 through like 2013 was really special in China. Like, I, I don't think it's ever going to happen again. Um, the, the speed of which things were moving was just so quick. And what people don't know is already like 2013, China was going heavy, heavy, heavy into two-wheel electric. It, I mean, it was already a, a big focus there. So, you know, in many ways, I, I just, I miss just that kind of newness and that freshness and that spark and there's always something new. And, um, yeah, I don't miss all the IP theft and all the, the doggy dog stuff, but, um, yeah, I think that, that sort of, that work cycle, especially, you know, I was in my twenties, so it was easy to, easy to work 20 hour days. There's no problem. Okay. So just the energy and just the pace and the feeling that like, you know, something was, something very big was at hand. Always um, something which new. Again, yeah. You know, yeah. So big, yeah. If you look at the if you look at the the the, the invest the U.S. investment now in manufacturing, you know this reinvestment. Uh, just you know that's a, a a more recent phenomenon, though. The, the the money does seem there now. Maybe not the energy and the, the pace that you, you you had, but you do seem to be on the front end of another big trend here in the U.S., which is our our recommitment. It seems to to manufacturing. Um, let's get into your vehicles. Uh, I think this is what um, you know. So many people on the 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 pod are going to know you for and are excited to ride if they haven't already. Um, your district scrambler and your, your, and the district, like as much as, you know, I think you're a pioneer and you're ahead of the curve with your vertical integration and manufacturing here in the U S I think you're also on top of another big trend that we consistently see, which is exactly what are your vehicles and the, this concept of modes and, um, you know, the different, uh, the different trips your vehicles can take as needed based on the infrastructure around them. Um, yeah, just let the audience know what these things do and, and how they do it. I think it's fascinating. Sure. So um, the district, which we look at as a, a platform, right? Um, kind of taking that lean manufacturing approach. It's it's a platform. It can be a scrambler. It can be a um, you know street bike. It could be a bicycle. Um, and the technology enables it to be different things. Um so like the best way to put it is it's not a bicycle, it's not really a motorcycle, but it can be a bicycle and it can be a moped and it can be a commuter and it can be a performance motorcycle. It can be all of these things um, in in a, a single platform, right? So in the software, letting the software define the vehicle really allows us to, um, to, to do some really interesting things. So... Um, and that's the one thing we noticed is, and I think this is a really unique, I didn't realize how unique it was before, but um, we've been, we've been told it's unique. So I, 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 I see it now. Um, since we're so focused on usability, um, we had to design a vehicle. So we did an event today. So uh, Forbes was here and of the like 30 people that showed up to had been on a motorcycle. No one else had ever ridden a motorcycle. So I can't put those people on a 50 mile per hour motorcycle. That'd be insane, right? Um, but what we can do is uh, lock it down into ride mode one, which is uh, 750 watts and 22 miles per hour. And uh, since it's, you know, two brakes, it's a handbrake front and rear, and then the throttle, um, we can easily get people onto something, onto a platform. Uh, and, you know, you grab the brakes with 750 watts, it stops the bike, right? So it's 
there's no whiskey throttle. There's nothing. Uh, we wrote the algorithm so it's it's super soft. Um, and then a few people were like, hey, I'd like to experience ride mode too. Um, can I flip it up, up into moped mode? And, and we allowed that. So um, any of these were people who ride what's bicycles. The, what's the speed limit on, on moped? Uh, 32 miles per hour. And um, here's what's cool about a software-defined vehicle and a connected vehicle. Um, we don't currently do this because the U.S. consumer is very against us limiting anything they do. Um, but what we can do is, since the vehicles are connected, we could limit moped mode per state. And um, so if it, if it, you know, caches it in the middle of Iowa, you can set moped mode for, for those laws, right? We don't, we don't have to define it here. It can be defined based on where it's at. Um, so the state of Ohio, it has to be under one horsepower and 32 miles per hour is the limit for a moped. You know, and if you have a driver's license in the state of Ohio, you can ride a, a moped if you're 16 and up. Um, we allowed people to get into moped mode that that were clearly comfortable. Um, and now what we've done is we've started their journey into um, this drug that most of us know, which is like two-wheel mobility, right? Um, and we've done it safely or, or as, as safe as we can um, because we've gone now from never riding to, okay, I've articulated the throttle. I know how that works. I know that it throws me back. Um, I know where my front brake is. I know where my rear brake is. No matter what you do, you grab those brakes, it stops. Um and then, then it steps up and like, we've had some people say, Hey, just lock the bike down from the factory into moped mode. And I, that's all I ever want it to be. Um, so this software defined nature of the vehicle is really important because like motorcycles have about 5% penetration in the U S maybe 7%. So most people aren't motorcycle riders, right? Why would we go for a, such a small market? Um, like that, to compete with the Hondas and the Suzukis and, and that that little space, it, it's very difficult. So we're kind of carving a a niche, and like we talked about before we started the podcast, like we're trying to figure out where these things fit. Um, the bikes all have DOT, so they've got um, you know DOT headlights, brakes, um, you know Pirelli tires, Shanko tires, DOT wheels, uh, burst tested brake lines. They're they are road going vehicles. Um, and, and like, that's the first thing we did is said, well, no matter what you can ride a DOT bike, a DOT motorcycle is a bicycle. It is completely illegal to ride a bicycle, um, above 22, unless you're a Pedelec, um, because then it, it's in the realm of, um, the federal FMBSS. Um, so, so here's, what's difficult though, because you're riding a bike at 22 miles per hour in the city of Cleveland and you're a target. It's, it's scary, right? It's scary to be on the road to only be able to go that fast. So we're in this weird gray area where there's actually technically no laws that will allow a vehicle to do this because the laws were written, you know, for, well, the, the, the bicycle, moped, motorcycle laws were written, written for CCs, right? How big your gas engine is. And then the bicycle laws that came to the industry, as, as we all know, were brought over here by the bicycle manufacturers, right? Trying to carve out their own little space. So this transitional product that is um, not pedal assist, that's not, you know, thousand pound motorcycle that's going to go from Ohio to California. There's this, this new gray area that for us is like the perfect space, uh, perfect space for electric. Um, and it's, it's just, we're, we're, there are no, 
there's no like absolute right now in this market. Yeah. Okay. So um, you said a lot there. That was awesome. I, I think the thing that if I were to um, play it back a little bit, you are a software defined platform for, for a vehicle. That vehicle can go anywhere from a class one to two. It sounds like based on, if I understood you correctly, e-bike up to a moped to a motorcycle to a performance bike. Those sort of these four modes. Um, <laughs> in but at the same time, so while you can do this all between the idea of the, of course, the electric drivetrain and the everything else you control the, the system with, the infrastructure isn't software defined yet. And and so the government is, of course, behind um, significantly on this. So while the government is probably very happy with you for your reshoring and your vertically integrating Cleveland for all the reasons that we would know, they're probably pretty upset about this idea that you're now introducing a vehicle um, that they have no idea how to define, uh, given the current uh, limitations of of our infrastructure, um, and that's that's fascinating. And again, I'll uh, you know I share this a little bit with Scott beforehand, but you know we're dealing with this in California, right? Where um, a new bill that uh, Assembly Bill forty three AB forty three has passed, it's now being rolled out. Will be technically official as of July of next year, in which basically most cities in California will be able to take speed limits down significantly on the roads that they, they govern, um, so city roads. The challenge, of course, is re-educating everyone on that, getting that new information out there, literally changing speed limits everywhere. Now, again, with newer cars, for instance, they can, they're can they software-defined in that if they're on autopilot and they've gotten this latest over-the-air update that you know now that the speed limit is no longer 45, it's 35, that's great. But for everyone else, like you know, it's kind of like this, this re-education process. And it's amazing to think, wow, what Scott's doing, what Land Energy is doing is something very similar from the the other side, which is we want to create a software-enabled vehicle that's going to actually make, as much as it's thrill-seeking as well, I'm sure you know, at level four is very much thrill-seeking, levels one, two, and three are might be seeking safety, might be seeking the best mode for the trip. Um, and that's that's really cool and fascinating. And so I, let's fast forward 10, 10, 20 years, Scott, like what do you think is, what are the roads? What is a software enabled vehicle look like? Um, you know, has everything be, been rewritten so that I can take my one vehicle? Now it's the a land, you know, it's the district scrambler and I can go 22 when I need to go 22. I can go 37 when I need to go 37 or I can go 55 when I need to go 55. Like what do you, what do you think happens? Sure. Well, our recommendation to all of our riders is to get a motorcycle license. <laughs> like that, that is our recommendation because, um, you know, if you do get pulled over, um, I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, right? If, if you're going under 22 and, and you show the police officer, Hey, I'm in ride mode one, you know, here's my document that says, you know, what this is great. You're within the law. Um, but as you know, and I know, um, almost all these e-bikes are being boosted, right? So, um, that's the reality. I mean, at least we're doing it from the safest way possible. Uh, you know, DOT brakes, uh, you know, proper glazings, all that. How about Scott? So on this point, you're in the, you're in the bike lane, you're on the district scrambler. Clearly it looks a little weird, right? This thing looks bigger than, you know, the tr- traditional pedal, pedal bike, definitely. And also e-bike. Like what's the, what's the weight on the district scrambler? Like what is that going to, what's that going to look like next to a, um, you know, a rad runner? Sure. So the, uh, district it starts around 180 pounds and goes up to 200. Um, so, you know, that was intentional um, because we had to get, uh, we wanted at least 120 miles of range 
at an average of 35 miles per hour. Um, so like if you go slower, you can get 100. I think most we got an e-bike mode about 170 miles. Um, so that's the trade-off, right? The faster you go, the quicker you you kill the batteries. The slower you go, the more range you get, um, but less fun. So they're heavier, right? They're, um, they've got to be heavy enough to be able to go. Um, so we're currently limiting the bikes to 72 miles per hour, the, the motorcycles. Um, so that's the kind of breath. Um, so like the rake and the trail, the way the suspension is set up, the physical weight, all of that has to be um, considered. So it it's good at, at low speeds. Uh, it's better at medium speeds. It's not great above 100 miles per hour, right? Um, but if you look at the motorcycle space, like a 250cc motorcycle would be about 350 pounds. So we're about 150 pounds lighter, lighter than a motorcycle and say, you know, 100 pounds to 120 pounds heavier than, um, you know, kind of a, a touring e-bike, right? Um, so, yeah, and this is just our first entry into the space. So we've got other entries that we're coming out with that are much more clearly defined. Um, so the product will be, uh, have much less kind of breath. Um, but like, you know, answer your question, the cities aren't really prepared for what's a, what's happening, um, which is um, a lot more e-mobility, whether it's, um, you know, one wheels or it's electric skateboards or it's, you know, mono wheels. Um, I mean, you saw the chaos that, that happened when, um, you know, shared mobility was just dumped on the streets of the world. Like, I think the world's still recovering from that. And is that a, is that an issue with the shared mobility or is it more of an issue that like the cities just aren't set up for this? Um, so we've seen the consumer, um, you know, the, the human being wants something other than just traveling around in a car. So if we don't rethink cities, like, you know, right now it's sidewalk, bike lane, cars, like that might not be the best way to reconfigure, right? It, there, there might be a, a, a different way to do it, but you know, these are like decade long changes, right? This is a, this is rethinking the way cities are, are built. Um, so we're not going to solve that today on this podcast, but what we're saying is that, um, but maybe we are Scott, just cause again, I, I ultimately, I don't think it's the city planners that solve this. I think it's the entrepreneurs that build things that consumers want that then they, everything else is shaped around that. Right. So if you were to bet, you know, and like what you're building as an example, like in let's say in 10, 15 years, do you think the idea is just your vehicle is smart enough and it's communicating with whatever road it's on, that basically the vehicle's going to go the uh, amount that that road is going to allow them. So the, you know, the, the bike lane is governed to 28, the share road lane is governed to 45, and then there's open roads, freeways, highways. Like, do you think it'll be like that? Or do you think it's going to be on the onus of the consumer and lease enforcement to basically say, oh, well, you know, you're on you know, I caught you in the bike lane on, in mode three or mode two. Yeah. Um, like, I'm just curious. Cause I, yeah, my, my thought is as much as the planners want to believe they control this, I think it's the consumer and I think it's people that make amazing things. So what it, what happens in the, in the perfect world for you? Okay. So I have two hats here. I have my American hat and I have my European hat. Um, so having lived in Germany, right. Das ist verboten. Uh, the European union is, is very much, um, I would say whether I want it or not, they're probably going to regulate some sort of 
digital nanny device. Um, I would say that's almost a foregone conclusion that there will be some sort of digital nanny that will enforce. Um, so, and, you know, having been in the industry so long, I know enough people that they're already forecasting to me that, hey, this is going to happen. Um, and, you know, that's very much um, the European uh, sort of like, well, it's good, for, you know, the common good is more important than my will, right? That's that's the European kind of sentiment. Um, and it might not work in Italy, it might not work in France, but it's definitely going to happen in Germany. And, you know, uh, the UK is definitely going to try to probably enforce something like that. Now, take my European hat off, put my American hat off and like F you, like you're going to, you're not going to tell me what to do. Um, so I would say, um, well, and, and actually a, a bicycle company did that. They, they tried to enforce speed limits and almost uh, the internet uh, went on fire overnight. Um, I'm not going to say the brand's name, but if, if anyone remembers the, the enforced speed limits that, that the over there update for one of our uh, our friends here in the U.S. tried to do it. It didn't work, right? There was a complete backlash. So I think we have to be careful. Um, I'm a firm believer. Scott, in like Scott, go- may I ask you so other hats? Because I know you've lived all around the world too. How about India? How about China? Where again, like there's so much more production happening there. There's so many more people on them that they could also be setting trends. I'm just curious what you think. Like, what do you think happens in India, in China, in Indonesia, other places you've lived where, of course, you're going to see a proliferation of these types of vehicles? Well, I mean- you know, you go to Manila and 90% of the vehicles on the road are, are motorcycles, right? Uh, you know, we call them big wheel scooters. They're, you know, automatic scooters, um, 125. I don't think it's going to be that stark of a change in other countries because you're already there. Um, and the reality is like the commodity, you know, commodity commuter, you know, two kilowatt battery, um, you know, six to 11 kilowatt hours, like that's already more than what those things do. Right. So I don't think it's going to be a stark, um, to go from gas to electric or nothing. Cause like the U S is very much, it's a coffee. You're in a car, right? If, if you're in the Midwest or if you're on the East coast, you're in a car, like that's, that's how you get around. Um, you know, in Germany, I got around in a car and a motorcycle. Um, Indonesia, I only got around in a motorcycle, right? India, we did cars and motorcycles, but most of the time we were on motorcycles. And since it's already there, I don't think the I, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. And actually, already in China, um, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, e mobility are just really slow moving vehicles. And yeah, I guess that's what I'm. I, I'm sort of asking Scott. So you think like uh, you know, if you in, in this future, you're a big part of this. You're building a software enabled vehicle that's like you know, again this is what all vehicles will be in time, a platform that can can move between modes. Like, do you really think uh, India, China, Indonesia, these places are, do they accept in, you know, like what is it, 1.3 million deaths from mobility globally, 40,000 here in the US. Um, so these other countries have massive issues where of course people are on these vehicles, but there's a huge toll to be paid for society on deaths and injuries and other things. If now you're offering them a solution to say, hey, we can make sure that this, two-wheeler is going this speed on this road versus that road versus that road you don't think they're gonna they're gonna take that up and make that shift or you think they'll stay you know accept the current status of mobility safety Uh, well i mean yeah i i think it's gonna take longer in southeast asia let's just put it that way like 
you know, maybe um, some countries will adopt it quicker. Um, India, anything to get anything moving in India is very difficult, right? There's just so many people and so many opinions, and it is a, you know, kind of a it is a democracy, so you can't just kind of, you know, rule by law. Um, so um, I think we're going to see different countries moving in in different directions. I mean, in a in a large way, you know, the biggest market right now is China for for small mobility. And it's been a fairly smooth transition. And I think that's mostly because people are just looking at these things as like slow general mobility. Um, the reason that doesn't work here, right? We've had, a, we've seen a lot of like um, just kind of slow speed Chinese um, kind of bicycles or like scooters come to the US is in China, it's like you hit a, a green light and the, you know, the the bicycles and all the scooters just kind of slowly take off and the cars do their thing. In the US, it's a freaking race. Like you got to, you want to get out in front of traffic because like you want to get out of the way of the cars, right? So it's a, it's a totally, totally different way of riding, totally different market. Since this is more of a leisure market, right? There's a lot more hoonage, right? There's a lot more, um, I'm doing this for fun and, you know, I'm breaking the law. So I, I don't think there's going to be a global... There's not, there's not going to be a, a global way that this works. Um, like even in Indonesia, like street racing is huge. Like that's a big thing. Like hopping up the little 125 scooters. That's a culture. Um, you know, there's a there's a culture of kind of, you know, cowboys and Indians, right? Like there's outlaw culture here in the U.S., which I very much see, um, very very much see. And even like some of the hypocrisy is funny, like. You know, like the mountain bikers fought so hard for to get mountain bike trails all around the U.S. And now that everything's moved to U.S., now they're moved to electric. Now they're trying to keep the electric bikes off the mountain bike trails, right? It's like, well, these are for us. And it's like, but this is also us. But now there's like an identity crisis, right? But like, well, what's a mountain bike now? And like, well, are e-bikes mountain bikes? And like, where are the different classes? And like, like there's this weird, there, there's this weird thing. So, um. I, yeah, I and I guess my were... thought there is sorry, just on that thought, Scott. No, my but... thought is where where regulation comes in in a negative way, I believe, is when people can fight against it and fight it on the basis of safety by saying the mountain bike saying, "Hey, get these things off the trail because they're unsafe." And it's almost to me, it seems like it's a race to show that these newer modes with these with this software defined, uh, you know, platform can show that actually these are safer, right? Like I go back to what you said originally, you know, roughly two out of the 30 people you saw will ride a motorcycle, right? That's a, I mean, that's culturally a safety issue, right? You have, you, have, you always have the, the, a couple crazies, but the majority of people are just like, whoa, that thing is not safe, right? The ability to start to show that these are actually safer, smarter. I'm just so, I'm so intrigued by this idea of what your vehicle could do from a safety perspective, um, what, at, at whatever speed it needs to go, is superior to even you know the mountain bike, which has no governor, which is is, is mm -hmm. human powered, but has all kinds of ways that it's not safe, um, all the way up. And so yeah, I'm because yeah, I think I think the new boats get beaten back if they get beaten back by the legacy folks that don't want them for all sorts of reasons, but also can prove that they're somehow less safe, which you know I don't think is true, but I think that's potentially how we lose this war. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's be clear, the legislation it's coming. Uh, it's coming globally, whether we want it or not. Um, you know, we've always taken the approach, which is be as safe as possible, right? Um, at least on the safety and the compliance side, 
be as compliant as you possibly can. Uh, because when the regulation hits, if you're most compliant, it's most likely not to affect you. Um, but what we're seeing right now is exactly what you're seeing, right? Um, there's kids taking bicycles and boosting them to 42 miles per hour, right? With brakes that can't handle that kind of speed um, because of the weight, right? So bicycle brakes, yeah, you're going 40 in a 20 pound bike with a 30 pound kid, you know, hundred pound kid, whatever it'll stop. But now you make that bike 120 pounds and you've just boosted it to, you know, 45, 50, the components aren't made for that. So this is something we struggle with all the time. And I, I think the next five years is really going to define what this looks like. It might hit the tipping point where everyone's like, screw it. We got to geofence this stuff. We've got to regulate it. Anything on the road's going to need, you know, that, that's one way to look at it. And I would say that's most likely what's coming is there's going to be licensing, there's going to be regulation, and we can either be part of the conversation, right? And as you were talking about, kind of as an industry, figure that out together, um, or it will be thrust upon us and most likely by people who don't ride. Like that's it's it's probably kind of going to come down, you know, from people who don't actually use the product, which, um, you know, may put regulation in a place that makes no sense. Um, yeah, good old good old fashioned regulatory capture, right? Where the cars will do the lobbying, yeah. they'll win the lobbying, and we'll all go back to driving in big dumb automobiles. But, but this is what I struggle with. Like th this is this is our struggle here because we're enthusiasts and we we care about safety. Um, but we realize that this is a other, this is not a bicycle. This is not really a, a, you know, a thousand CC or a 650 CC motorcycle. So it's an other, and we're really just trying to figure out where it lives. And, um, you know, because it's such a new thing in the U S at least, a, um, you know, a new thing that it's not a bicycle and it's not a car. There's so much gray area right now that is, um, that is, is really got to be explored. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're, we're, we're with you. We're exploring and, you know, I, I hope this becomes a topic at Micromobility America uh, this, this year. And, you know, you can connect with other entrepreneurs and even policy people and, and really talk about this. Cause I don't think this is talked about enough in the open and it, and it really should be. Um, well, that's what, that's Scott, what drives me nuts about this industry specifically is, and as I told you, I don't engage with a lot of it because it's, there's a lot of like religious fervor around the green aspect or the, you know, the, the regulatory aspect or a lot of people spout off like the ideal situation and they're not living in the real world. Um, they're not living in the world that we live in, which is um, let's talk about the issues because they're here, whether we want to actually, they need to be solved. Right. And if we don't talk about them, they're just going to keep growing. Yeah. I, uh, it reminds me of that saying, um, the only thing, the only problem with bicycling is a cyclist. Um, you know, like there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's something to that. And I think that's true. And I think we've got to, we've got to get past that and the zealotry and, and all of that doesn't, doesn't do us any good. I mean, this is about a, a great way to move for the vast majority of people. Um, and so let's just, you know, common sense solutions, middle ground thinking is often the, be the best way forward. Um, Scott, there's a couple of things I wanted to get to. One is, you know, congratulations. I know you raised some some uh, Series A uh, finance in September, which you know, for a lot of mobility companies that have struggled recently to 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 raise as the macroeconomic conditions change and just the venture capital landscape changes. I think that's a great signal of your success, of both your prior success, but of course, betting on the future and what you're building. 
anything specifically about that Series A that you wanted to discuss or, or mention? Sure. So, um, you know, we are very much dependent on our next round to keep moving. Um, so I would say we, we did this a little different. Um, you know, to date, we've raised only $7 million. Um, We've been super scrappy. We've done everything to now with $5 million. Um, so we've seen a lot of companies come in with 50, 90, 100 plus million and burn through it and then get to market. And you've got all this pressure that now you've got to sell a thousand bikes a month, right? Or you, you've got to do this um, or you've you know, just made 10 million in product and you're sitting on it and you got to figure out a way to move it. So um, having scaled a global motorcycle manufacturing company, there are just certain things we knew we had to do to just keep, you know, maybe... Maybe this and not like this, right? Um, and it's difficult because we're doing the hard stuff and it's taking money and we're being super scrappy as we do it. But now we're seeing the market's ready, right? 2024 is going to be a big year for us. Uh, 2024 is going to be a big year for this light electric vehicle or this kind of transitional uh, product. So now we need to bring in more capital scale quicker. Um but we did a couple of the things that, uh, this is what I found in my first company, the nuts and bolts, like the things that people don't care about are the things that often lead to success. Um, like, yes, the design is very important. It is a big part. I'm a designer. It's very important to me. But all of the backend stuff, you know, customer support, um, you know, ERP system, you track our parts, uh, customer relationship, uh, CRM system, like all of those nuts and bolts, if we would have went from zero to a hundred, we would have had all the issues that you're seeing right now. So we took a slightly different path. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe we could have went a lot quicker if we would have taken a lot more money, but I think we're in a much better place to scale with having product in the market, leading with the product, right? Having the product out there, it's a considered vehicle. Uh, we just say get on them, like you were saying. Um, like we say butts on bikes. You said what butts, uh, butts on seats. Yeah. So the butts on bikes. Um, when you hop on our on our vehicle, it's instant. It's you understand what we're talking about. Like it, it is a real considered product. Buttery throttle response, amazing brakes, chassis geometries nailed, uh, the materials right. Um, you know, we, we've got some amazing tires with these Pirellis that we're using. Um, you know, some of our, our partners, it's, we can't compete on cheap. We don't do cheap. We can't compete on kind of bottom basement costs, but at the, you know, the considered product, a good value product, it's the best thing that exists with what we're doing right now. And, and we firmly believe that. And the butts on bikes approach is, is doing that. Um, so we, we're just entering our series B right now. And um, basically the, the focus is getting the second bike in, into mass production, um, expanding our battery platform, so uh, putting our connectivity module in the battery, having our um, IoT battery, that's a big focus. And then we do have um, LOIs, or we've got, a, sorry, industry speak. I, I'm assuming it's mostly industry people listening, so we can... Um, but now we've got other manufacturers looking to use our batteries in their products. Um and that's, that's how we see the scale going, which is, you know, the bike's really the Trojan horse. It's a very considered amazing Trojan horse, 
But that's really what what scales our energy platform. And it's something we don't really talk about publicly um, because, you know, like you could tell people you're going to Mars, but until you show them the spaceship, it's like, are you, yeah, are you really going to do that? So we've got our spaceship now and now we're teasing out kind of the bigger vision. Okay. Well, I think you see it in your name, Land Energy. I think you see it in, you know, your, your previous work, Scott. Um, and, you know, clearly we could, we, could, we need a whole other uh, pod to talk about the, you know, the IoT battery solution and how you see uh, scaling that out. But very excited to think about this idea of a connected battery ecosystem, you know, that from a company, you know, built in, and born in Cleveland and what that might, what that might mean for other, you know, people, of course, that want to, to work with you on, on your connected battery uh, ecosystem. So, uh, Scott, to, just to, to round out here, um, you know, we're going to have you at Micromobility America in a couple of days. Hopefully, we're going to we're going to have Scott on stage with some announcements, um, and uh, I think that's that's really excited for everyone. For people that want to check it out, want to try your bikes, anyone coming to Micromobility America will be able to try your bikes, of course, there. But how about for just anyone that that is not able to make the event? Um, where should they go, and and what should they do when they when they find you? Sure. So uh, easiest way to find us is just go to land.bike. So L-A-N-D dot B-I-K-E. That's our main website. Uh, we are just moving from strictly direct to consumer. Um, and now we have some dealerships. So the next phase of this was uh, having enough bikes, getting through all of our pre-sales to actually support the dealers. And, uh, you know, that butts on bikes is real to us. So outside of, you know, the micro mobilities and the other events, uh, the dealerships are are really important. So we do have a couple in uh, Southern California. Uh, we have a, a couple across the U.S. now, but hopefully by the hopefully by the show next week, our dealer uh, finders up and and running, and you can kind of find a local demo near you. Um, but that's going to continue to grow out into 2024. So the butts on bikes is real. Um, you know, when you see the product, you ride the product. That's that is the best selling tool we have. Absolutely, yeah. No, I can't wait. I can't wait to ride it um, at Micromobility America, and um, yeah, I'm well excited to get that dealer network up for people that are that, that can't make it for them to be able to see it and, of course, ride it. Uh, Scott, thanks again. Uh, again, pumped to, to to try the vehicles out and see what else you're up to. And uh, thanks for everything that you're building for the community. Cool. Well, I hope I didn't. Uh, I, I hope I didn't go go too deep into any subject, but. Um, you know, you said open forum. We're we're just having a, a fun discussion here. So, um, you know, the way we see it isn't always ideal, but um, you know, being a manufacturer, I would say that that takes the idealism kind of right out of you, and you're dealing with you know problems on on a daily basis. So we're we're very much in a you know kind of solve it mode, and um, you know the, the legislation right now we're in a solve it mode. Right, we've we've got to lean into it. We've, we've got to realize it's coming, be a part of the solution. And, um, you know, we're happy to engage right there. So, well, yeah. Well, thanks for bending the metal for us. And, you know, hopefully we can help, uh, help you with that other stuff. All right, Scott. Thanks so much. 